This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It is Saturday, April the 1st, 2023. And so in time on the tradition, we are talking April Fool's Day. We are looking at the customs, the history, and everything to do with the day where you should not believe anything that you read on the internet. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Yeah, I have a confession to make. Um, I had forgotten it was April Fool's Day today, um, which is ironic, possibly, given that I taught a whole lesson about French April Fool's customs to my year nines in the middle of the week. It was literally my lesson with them on Wednesday. Um, it was all about Poisson d'Avril. Um, and it wasn't until this morning when I woke up and in fact was setting up for the show that I remembered that today was April Fool's Day, and given, you know, my love of a calendar curriculum is well documented here on Teach Talk Radio, I thought it would be remiss of me not to do a show on April Fool's Day. So we are in another last-minute change of plan. You might remember that last week's show was also a last-minute change of plan um, based on something that a parent had said to me. And so I was looking at role models. If you haven't listened to that show, please do go back in and check it out because it was an interesting one, thinking about what it means to be a teacher as a role model. But we are being a little bit spontaneous on Saturday morning breakfast um, at the moment. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think sometimes it is good for me as your host to be flexible to have a look at what is going on in the world and change my plans for the show based on that in the same way that in the classroom I would change my lesson on a whim depending on exactly what was going on exactly what was the mood of my class at the time. So the plan for today is for us to have a chat about April Fool's Day, about what it means, about where it all started, where it has come from, how it has evolved, and of course, being a global citizen, um, as is the big buzzword in so many schools at the moment, how countries outside of the UK, where I am based, celebrate April Fool's Day. Now, I'm going to be honest, I am not a fan. Um, I like a joke, I like humour, I I, I like to think that I'm funny, and I tip my hat to my friends who um, who indulge my fantasies of being funny by laughing at my awful jokes. Um, but I'm not a fan of practical jokes, if I'm honest. I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, I think it's because they take the recipient off guard. Um, and I personally don't like being caught off guard. Um, it makes me feel anxious. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, so practical jokes 
are not my thing. And so this is where I will just say that um, as far as my portions of the show today are concerned, there will be no April Fool's prank played. Um, Everything that I tell you this morning is true as far as I know, and as far as we can ever know when we are looking at the history and literatures of things. Um, So I'm just going to put that out there. I cannot speak for anything else that you will see on the internet today. Um, We should always take things that we see online with not just a grain of salt, but a huge, massive salt mine. Everything that we see on the internet should be considered critically and analytically, even when it is agreeing with your personal opinions, even when it agrees with your bias, you should still think about the sources of the things that you read, you should still think about the the trustworthiness of what you are looking at. Now, of course, I'm pretty sure that everybody listening this morning is an adult. I cannot imagine that any child or teenager is interested in something called Teachers Talk Radio, quite frankly, um, because I think they get enough of us when they are in school. However, even as adults, it is very important, I think, sometimes for us to be reminded uh, of looking at things critically, of, of making sure that we don't spread misinformation, knowingly or unknowingly. Like I said, it's not always easy. It's not always easy because everything that we think we know comes to us having been taught to us by somebody else. And everything is filtered through their perceptions and biases. And it comes to us and gets filtered through our perceptions and biases. You know, we can never, it doesn't matter how unbiased we think a lesson might be, we think a lecture might be, uh, we think my show might be. I like to think that my show is unbiased, but I know that it's not because I have control over my show. I bring to you things that I personally am interested in, and it's always gonna come with my particular bias in terms of the fact that I think that language and literature and religion and history are the most fascinating things in the world. And the fact that I think that certain teaching techniques and certain pedagogies are better than others, Uh, based on my own experiences as a teacher and a learner, it's all filtered through my biases. And of course, you as my listeners, you decide whether you agree with me or not. I never ever want you to be swayed by me. Um, I never ever want you to feel that you should uncritically and unabashedly just take my advice as read, except for this, because I think this is good advice. Um, Because I think that's dangerous. I think that's dangerous. And, you know, we need to remember that. And we need to make sure that our students remember that. We need to make sure that we teach our young people to think critically about everything, that they don't adhere to confirmation bias, that they don't believe sources just because they say what the children want to hear, that they don't believe things just because they're on social media. Um, I read something quite interestingly No, I didn't. I read something quite interesting um, the other day. I'm sure I did read it interestingly, but the fact is the piece was interesting. Um, And it was from a teenager who was talking about how young people are critiqued because they don't read the news. And, And this teenager said, you know, why would we read the news? Why would we watch the news when we know it's filtered through the, the big corporations? 
Why would we do that when we can go on TikTok and get our news from the influencers who give it to us in an unbiased way? And, and I admired this young person for acknowledging the biases of the, the big corporations. But what stood out to me was that they didn't realize that the influencers that they listen to are also being biased. Um, they didn't realize that, you know, when it says ad up in the corner, that means that the influencer is being paid to influence them. Um, it didn't seem to occur that the influencer will have their own politics, their own religion, their own agenda, for lack of a better word. And so, you know, as we think about not just literacy um, in terms of, as we understand it, in terms of reading and writing, but when we think about digital literacy in particular, one of the big things that we need to do is make sure that our young people are critical of what they see, what they read, what they hear. And we know that they can be, because I'm sure every single one of us listening that has interacted with a young person, whether we are a teacher or not, has had what we've said to them critiqued. Why should we believe you? I read the source and I interpreted it, I interpreted it differently. And there is a comfort, I think, when young people do that with us as adults. It, it shows that they feel safe to question what we are telling them. They, they feel like they can explore these ideas in an environment where they won't be criticized for doing so. And I think that's really healthy. I think that's really positive. So we know that young people can be critical of what they see and hear. Um, we just need to make sure that um, they know that it doesn't just extend to us and that they should have that critique of everything. Because I think that's really, really important. So yeah, I'm going to be honest, I'm not a fan of April Fool's Day. Um, I always feel a little bit relieved when midday comes, uh, because for those of you listening internationally, the English tradition is that it's perfectly fine to play your April Fool's practical jokes up until 12 o'clock noon, uh, and then it all finishes at 12. And if anybody plays a prank in the afternoon or the evening, they themselves are the April Fool instead of the, the recipient of the prank. That's the tradition here. And so I'm always a little bit relieved when that comes around and I've made it through the morning unscathed. Uh, so I think my plan is just to sit here in the Saturday Breakfast Show studio for the whole morning. I'm just gonna have a long breakfast. Don't worry, I'm not gonna force you to endure the whole morning with me. We're still only gonna be here until 10.30 as usual. Um, but I think I'm going to hide out in the studio this morning to make sure that I don't fall for any pranks, um, wittingly or otherwise. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. In union news, Daniel Kbede has been elected leader of the National Education Union. 
The union is the largest teachers union and has been at the forefront of industrial action over teachers pay in recent months. Mr Cabede said in a statement, after taking 69% of the vote to win the election, I am honoured to have been elected as General Secretary. I would like to thank everyone who has supported and campaigned for me. He went on to talk about the need for fundamental change in education and that this included an end to real terms pay cuts, an end to massive overwork of staff, the end of punitive Ofsteds and an increase in school funding. He also thanked current Joint General Secretaries Kevin Courtney and Dr Mary Bowstead for their inspiring leadership over the last six years. They will step down at the end of August. The BBC reports that, according to a leaked government document, almost a quarter of teachers in England are working 12-hour days, with around 60% of teachers saying they were doing 60 hours a week or more. The research by the Department for Education was carried out during spring 2022, but the findings have not been officially made public. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has said that a new task force will be created to help reduce teachers' workload by an average of five hours per week. The leak comes as teaching unions consult members in England on a new pay offer, which includes the promise to reduce workload. The leaked document, marked confidential and given the title Working Lives of Teachers and Leaders, was produced by the DfV to examine issues around teacher supply, recruitment and retention. More than 11,000 teachers and leaders across primary and secondary were questioned. The report found one in four teachers were considering leaving the state sector within the next 12 months. Workload was the key factor in this decision. Three quarters said they spent too much time on paperwork. Two thirds of leaders said they spent too much time responding to government policy changes. One in five said they had low satisfaction in their working life, whilst almost a half rated their anxiety levels as high. Almost three quarters of teachers described their workload as unacceptable. Dr Mary Bowstead of the NEU accused ministers of withholding important information from the peer review body although the government denied this. A spokesperson for the government insisted that the recent pay offer of 4.3% plus a £1,000 one-off payment was fair and reasonable. The Department for Education has released an update on the .gov.uk website focusing on the review of the way relationship, sex and health education is delivered. The update comes after a number of stories across media outlets prompted concern and outrage from some quarters and claims that hysteria is being whipped up by right-wing agitators from others. RSHE education has been compulsory for pupils in primary schools since September 2020. In secondary schools, relationships and sex education must be taught. The review, which will be completed by an expert panel, will focus on how to ensure pupils have access to age-appropriate information and how to place protection from pupils being introduced to things that they are too young to understand properly. The panel will also consider how age ratings can be introduced for different parts of the curriculum. The review will be completed before the end of 2023. As we approach Easter, the debate about supporting families who receive support through free school meals should be supported in holiday times and it's opened up again. The big issue raises concerns that despite the cost of living crisis, many families will go without support until term begins again. In what it calls a postcode lottery for support, many families will miss out as current funding largely depends on where you live. 
In England, the government is not directly funding free school meals over the Easter break, but support may be available if local councils decide to provide meals or vouchers. Many councils are relying on the holiday activities and food programme to support low-income families. In Scotland, some councils are offering free school meals payments to low-income families, but universal free school meals for children in primary one to five will not be available. There is some support available, but it varies by council, as does the amount of support being offered. The Welsh Government has made free meals available throughout the holiday period. The Government in Wales announced that £9 million has been provided to support eligible pupils with a free meal up to the end of May half term, including all bank holidays. The support will take the form of meal vouchers, money or packed lunches. In Northern Ireland, no free school meal provision is available. The previous holiday hunger payments of £27 per fortnight ceased on April 1st. A Department for Education spokesperson said it was because additional ring-fenced funding had ended. But campaigners focusing on food poverty said the decision was abhorrent. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. I think what I find most concerning about this whole RSHE hysteria is, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm just fortunate to have worked with um, such high-level professionals for my whole career, but I cannot think of a single teacher um, who has delivered RSHE, including myself, who would even dream of teaching anything that was age-inappropriate. I'm not quite sure where this idea that teachers just deliver a curriculum willy-nilly comes from. I don't think that a reception teacher is going to look at their group of four and five-year-olds and say, I know better than anybody else what these children need and then deliver an RSHE curriculum that is not only beyond their understanding because they are four and five years old but beyond what they need to know we are teachers we are professionals we spend years doing what we do i spent three years training i have a bachelor's degree in education i have a master's degree in education i have 16 years of educational experience if all of those things don't qualify me to know how to do my job properly, I honestly don't know what does. And again, I cannot think of a single person that I have worked with who has delivered RSHE who would deliver something inappropriate because we know that the point of our lessons is for our children to learn. We know when our children are ready to learn we know what they need to know. And most of all, believe it or not, we want our children to remain children for as long as possible. We see how quickly children grow up these days because of media influences, because of what goes on at home, because of the, the kinds of things that they are exposed to out in the world. And again, particularly at primary, it's a big issue that children are growing up too fast. And I cannot think of a single primary teacher who wants to add to that 
who wants to be a cause of children growing up too fast by exposing them to any kind of curriculum that is age inappropriate. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that I do not believe that RSHE is being delivered in an age inappropriate way. I, I cannot think of, in my experience, a teacher who would consider doing that. Again, maybe I'm just privileged, maybe I'm just very lucky with the people that I have worked with over the past 16 years. But I think sometimes people need to remember that teachers know what they're doing. Particularly people who are not teachers, particularly people who don't have teachers in their lives, particularly people whose only experience of teachers has been when they were at school. And so they have the, the ingrained bias, as I was talking about earlier, against teachers. And trust us to know what we're doing. Trust us to do our job properly. Trust us to understand that four-year-olds need a different type of RSHE to 11-year-olds who need a different type of RSHE to 16-year-olds. Because we're not stupid. We know that. We understand. It's it, the issue with the, um, uh, the workload is the same thing. Because honestly, thinking about it, it is very difficult to reduce teacher workload. It really is. We are one of the few professions where if we don't do work outside of our workday, we don't have anything to do when we get to our workday. If we don't do the planning, if we don't do the photocopying, if we don't make the PowerPoint, if we don't go and collect the paper and the paints from the arts room, we can't do anything interesting when we are in the classroom. That is the, the catch-22 of teaching. There is a lot of nonsense paperwork. There really is. And so I think, you know, that can go and that will help. I'm going to be honest and say that there is a lot of nonsense surrounding the marking and assessment of children's work. That needs a huge review. And we need to stop saying, oh, we know that verbal feedback is the best type of feedback and start looking at how we put that into practice. Because what we're doing with marking, which does take up a lot of teacher work time is saying we know that it's best to talk to our children about their work and then refusing to do it so that we can spend hours of our time writing whole essays in response to essays in exercise books that we know children by and large do not read and that we know is not best practice. So we are in a culture where we are deliberately not always doing what we know is best whilst making work for ourselves because, and the justification for this always is, if somebody looks at this book, they need to know that I've seen the work. And this is where, in my opinion, a huge amount of teacher workload issues come from. The fact that we are constantly 
having to be scrutinized, the fact that we are constantly having to justify ourselves. And I think if there was some more trust, not just from the people who like to sit on Twitter and talk about how we are corrupting young people, but from the people who are supposed to be supporting us, the people in government who are supposed to be on our side, to trust us and to know what we're doing, uh, I think that would go a long way to reducing workload. Because in practical terms, it's, it's actually very difficult. What we need is an overhaul of our system. What we need is a re-evaluation of our priorities. What we need is to do what is best for our young people and not what is best for an inspectorate. And that's all I'm going to say on that, because I could go, I could get on my soapbox and talk about that for the next hour, but that's depressing and I want to talk about April Fool's Day. Tim has texted in, good morning, Tim. I, Tim is a, um, a huge friend of the show, a very big supporter here on Saturday Breakfast, and I'm always, always fascinated to hear what he has to say. He's texted in to say, I'm cheering from here, you're spot on. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to know, it's nice to know that we have support from outside the community. In case anybody doesn't know, Tim isn't a teacher, Tim is a writer for young people. And so he is, his profession is one that interlinks so nicely with ours. You know, his is one where we stand in front of the children and tell them things. Tim sits and he puts things in his books for children to learn, for children to know about. And I actually think that if teachers and writers for young people worked a bit closely together, worked a bit more closely together, we could come up with some quite nice things, some nice curricula, some nice books, some nice ideas, some nice, I don't know, a, a nice world for our children to live in. But that's another soapbox that I could stand on, which I'm not here to do today. I'm here to talk to you about April Fool's Day. Um, in English, the first reference to April Fool's Day, we think, actually comes from Chaucer. Now, for those of you who are not sure, Geoffrey Chaucer is in fact the father of modern English. A lot of what we now consider to be standard correct English in terms of uh, grammar and particularly in terms of pronunciation actually comes from Chaucer. So Chaucer was born in the 1340s. Uh, he died in 1400. And during this time, English was undergoing a massive and rapid change. And within England, specifically, each region had its own variation of English. We still see that to some extent today, um, particularly in terms of accent, because accent really is nothing but pronunciation. Accent, realistically, is just how you pronounce your words. Um, but also in terms of vocabulary. So one of the 
best British memes, in my opinion, is the one that asks what you call a bread roll. Because where you go in England and in the UK in general, there will be completely different terms for a bread roll. Um, some of them make no sense to me whatsoever. So obviously, because I've now said it twice, I call it a roll. Um, but depending on where you are in the country, you will call it something very different. Go back to the the late 1300s, early 1400s, and before that, the diversity of English in England was even bigger. Um, it was as if all of the old kingdoms from before we became, before England became one united country, had still retained their own individual languages. But what happened, of course, was that the printing press was invented in Germany. It was making its way across Europe. So mass-produced literature was becoming a thing. And of course, in order to be able to understand mass-produced literature, you need to be able to understand the language in which it was written, even when, ostensibly, it's your native language. So when Chaucer was writing and his works were being mass-produced, they were being disseminated all across England so that people could read his works and enjoy them, his use of English became the standard because his use of English became the common one that people could use to communicate. And that's what standard language is. As a linguist, I'm very much aware that we don't talk about correct English anymore. We don't talk about things that are grammatically correct. We talk about things that are grammatically standard. And standard means we use our grammar, we use our pronunciation in this way so that we can be understood by anybody who speaks English wherever they are in the world. That's the whole point of um, standard common language. Of course, we can, we can deviate from standard English and be understood. If I were to say to you, me and my friends went to the shop, you would understand what I meant, despite the fact that that is grammatically unstandard. I should say my friends and I went to the shop. But generally, standard English came about so that literature could be read and literature could be enjoyed. And of course, that's how the pronunciation of words came about too, because Chaucer wrote poetry, he wrote in verse, and so when you look at his writings and you look at his end rhyme, you go, oh, okay, so that word, whatever it should be, must sound the same as that word. Because that's how Chaucer has written it. And that's how standard pronunciation became a thing. Now, that never quite caught on in English, as we see from our diversity of accents uh, for a very small country. England has so many different accents. Um, but generally, that was kind of in a nutshell, that was what happened. So Chaucer is very, very influential. Um, Chaucer and Shakespeare between them, I think, have had the biggest influence on modern English out of any other writer that I can think of. In the same way that um, I spoke a few weeks ago on the show about how Moliere 
is the the father of modern French. Uh, so are Chaucer and Shakespeare to English. Chaucer also had a very interesting life because he is one of the first um, examples that we have in history, as far as I'm aware, of upward mobility. Um, Chaucer's great-grandfather owned a pub. He was a tavern keeper, uh, which was a decent enough job back in those times, but it wasn't great. You know, he wasn't very high up the, uh, up the social ladder. Uh, Chaucer's grandfather was a wine purveyor, and Chaucer's father became a wine merchant uh, and himself got a royal appointment. So, you know, they were all in the wine industry. Great-grandfather to grandfather to father. But they rose in the ranks. They rose up the social ladder. Which, of course, is, is why Chaucer was um, privileged enough to make a job out of being a writer and a poet and a philosopher. Um, and, you know, not having to get a proper job like most people did. Um, things were not always easy in the Chaucer family. Uh, for example, his dad, John Chaucer, in 1324, was kidnapped uh, by, I believe, one of his aunts um, in, in the hope that he would marry his 12-year-old cousin uh, in order to maintain a property. Um, the, the aunt was then imprisoned for kidnap. Uh, she was fined £250, which, according to Wikipedia, is about the equivalent of £200,000 in today's money. Um, and so that suggests that by the time um, of Chaucer's father, the family had money. Um, Chaucer's dad, John, the uh, the the wine merchant, eventually did marry. He married a lady called Agnes Copton. Uh, she inherited property, including 24 shops in London, uh, which meant that they became a very wealthy, very well-to-do family, which again is why Geoffrey Chaucer was privileged enough uh, to take a job that many of us would love to have and was able to uh, to write for a living. We, as those of us who are native English speakers, should be grateful for that um, because we owe about 2,000 words in English uh, to Chaucer. So again, I've spoken before on the show about how Shakespeare invented so much English vocabulary. So did Chaucer. Um, he was hailed by Thomas Hockleave, one of his contemporaries, as uh, the first founder of our fair language. And on top of that, on top of all the linguistic stuff that he did, he also, and this is contested, I'll concede that, but he also made potentially the first reference to April Fool's Day, or at least the first link between April the 1st and the idea of a fool. So his Canterbury Tales 
is a an epic work that consists of a bunch of stories all under the frame story of some pilgrims going off to Canterbury. Hence the name. Uh, so the idea is this band of pilgrims are going off on a pilgrimage, that's why they're pilgrims, and to kind of pass the time as they are walking, they tell each other some stories. And so each story is, is headed, is titled by the person telling it. So, and, you know, those of us who have been through the English education system, the British education system, will be aware of some of them. Um, I think most people study the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, uh, which is one of my favourite pieces of English literature, purely because I like how it sounds. Um, many of us know The Wife of Bath. That's a particularly bawdy story. Um, many people know um, the... Oh, I'm just trying to call to mind now. I've just said many people know, and my mind has gone blank. So I'm just going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop bluffing and just say that his, his Canterbury Tales are generally very, very well known throughout the English speaking world. And many of us study them. So it's in the, um, the nun's priest's tale that there is this alleged link between April the 1st and foolishness. Uh, now, the, the nun's priest's tale is really interesting. Um, it's a beast story. It's a beast fable. Fable. It's a mock epic, and it takes place in the Renard cycle. Now, Renard itself is a really interesting concept. Um, it, Renard was a, a trickster character in medieval literature who was a fox. So these beast tales, the idea of animals, anthropomorphic animals, animals taking on human attributes, um, they were very popular in, in medieval times. And, and Renard the Fox was one of the big ones. Uh, and he has this cycle. So there are lots of stories that make up the Renard the Fox canon. And lots of people wrote them. It's a bit like King Arthur where you have all sorts of stories that fit into that cycle. And Renard, in fact, was so popular that his name became the modern French word for fox, renard. That's where that comes from. Uh, that's why it's so removed from the Latin word vulpus, which is, is where it originally, which is where the original French word for fox came from. Um, so the, the story in the nun's priest's tale is based on a, a Renard story. It's a reception, it's a retelling of a Renard story. Um, and that then gave rise to the popularity in Britain of the story of Chanticleer and the Fox, uh, because it's kind of the same thing. It's a very long story. It runs uh, 695 lines and includes within it a prologue and an epilogue. Um, it, the prologue links it back to the monk's tale, which came before. Um, and the, um, the, the, the epilogue just kind of rounds it off. Okay. But this is the allegedly 
the first time that we have a link between uh, the 1st of April and stupid things happening. Because there is this, um, this rooster called Chanticleer, and he's tricked by a fox, and the line in the in in the poem says, uh, "Since March began, thirty days and two." Now, many people understand that as being thirty-two days since the beginning of March, and of course, March has thirty-one days. So, thirty-two days since the beginning of March can be interpreted as being the first of April. But the the contestation of this comes from the fact that the story also says that it takes place when the sun is in the sign of Taurus, Hadiranna, 20 degrees and one, which itself would not be April the 1st. So there is some, some dispute within the story itself about when it takes place. Of course, this is a fiction, so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Um, the reason, though, that this is significant is because this is a f almost 200 years before the next mention of April Fool's Day. So, kind of, if we were to argue that, uh, that Chaucer did make mention of April Fool's Day, it means that English 1392 approximately, was the first time that this was mentioned as being a thing. If he did not, then actually we have no mention of April Fool's Day until France 1508. And that's a mention by the poet um, Eloy uh, Damerval. And he talked about the Poisson d'Avril, the April fish. And Poisson d'Avril is still the, the French word for April Fool's Day. The suggestion behind this in France is the idea that in the Middle Ages, um, lots of European countries were still celebrating New Year in March, on the 25th of March. Um, and in France specifically, the New Year celebrations ran from the 25th of March until the 1st of April. And at this time in the Middle Ages, there was also the shift from this traditional old-fashioned New Year in March and April to the more modern New Year of the 1st of January. And those who were proponents of the 1st of January New Year said that anybody who was celebrating their New Year in March and April was a fool. And so there was this idea that people who, um, who were, were celebrating on the 1st of April were foolish, whence April Fool's Day. But again, there is a problem with this theory because there is a poem from 1561, a, pem a, Pemish, a Flemish poem from 1561, um, about a nobleman who sends one of his um, one of his servants off on some foolish errands on the first of April, uh, which itself predates the change of the new year. 
So, again, we are not really sure. The next big mention of April Fool's Day we get comes from 1572, which describes the Dutch victory in the capture of Brielle. So the Spanish Duke um, Alvarez de Toledo was defeated on the 1st of April. And there's a proverb in Dutch that says, on the 1st of April, Alva lost his glasses. Um, because the Dutch word for glasses is bril, uh, which is a homonym for the town of Brielle. And so it's this play on words, it's this pun. On the 1st of April, Alva lost his glasses. On the 1st of April, Alva lost Brielle. So there is an argument that April Fool's Day is of Dutch origin from the 1570s and celebrates this, this capturing of a town. But of course, as historians, as, um, as people have pointed out, this doesn't explain why April Fool's Day is celebrated internationally. The next reference we get, so we're now at 1572, the next reference we get is 1668 uh, from John Aubrey. Uh, and John Aubrey called it uh, the Fool's Holy Day. So John Aubrey is a British writer. He was, this we believe, is the first British reference to April Fool's Day, if we are taking Chaucer as being English rather than British. Um, so he referred to that. And then we've got evidence from 1698, where several people were tricked to going over to the Tower of London to see some lions being cleaned. Which I think, I actually think that's quite funny. I think that's quite funny. There is then a reference in 1769, which dates April Fool's Day back to the Genesis flood narrative. So in the London Public Advisor, uh, sorry, Public Advertiser in 1769, it was written, um, the mistake of Noah sending the dove from the ark before the waters had abated on the 1st of April, uh, and to perpetuate the memory of the deliverance, it was thought proper, whoever forgot so remarkable a circumstance, to punish them by sending them upon some sleeveless errand similar to that ineffectual message upon which the bird was sent by the patriarch. So by 1769, there had become this tradition that April the 1st was the first was the day that Noah sent the first dove out to see whether the flooding of the world was over. Um, for those of you who don't know the Genesis story, that dove came back and it turned out that the flood wasn't over. So Noah waited a little bit longer and then sent out a second dove. Um, and it seems fairly arbitrary, this idea of April the 1st being that day. There's no way to know that. Um, even if you come from a standpoint where the story of Noah's Ark is true, the ancients used completely different calendar systems. And in fact, we don't know what calendar system was being used um, by the ancients during the Old Testament because it changed. Um, the Bible actually is quite a good linguistic source 
of the different calendars that were operating at that time. So what this seems to be to me is an attempt of taking April Fool's Day, which by 1769 seems to have become an ingrained tradition, and giving it some kind of biblical um, relevance, some kind of biblical recognition to justify celebrating it, which I think is really interesting. So that's a quick rundown of the origins, I suppose, of April Fool's Day from Chaucer in 1392 through to uh, back to London, I suppose, with the public advertiser in 1769. And over those 400-ish years, it had become an ingrained part of uh, European tradition. Um, Emmanuel has texted in. It's lovely to hear from you. Emmanuel is listening to us from Ghana. That's really cool. I always love how international our audience is. I hope you're enjoying the show. Um, if you don't mind telling me, Emmanuel, is April Fool's Day, that's the topic of our show today, is that something that you that you celebrate in Ghana? Is that something that you have? Um, I'm always interested to know where these traditions happen and where they don't. What I thought would be interesting for us now, because the nun's priest's tale is not one that is particularly widely studied, would be for us to hear it. So I've got a recording of the story uh, that we are going to take a listen to. So please do grab yourself a cup of coffee and enjoy being, um, being entertained, enjoy the culture of listening to St. Chaucer. Section 10 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kay Hand. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. Section 10. The Nun's Priest's Tale and Truth, Ballad of Good Counsel by Geoffrey Chaucer. The Nun's Priest's Tale. A poor widow, some deal stope in age, was Wilhelm dwelling in a narrow cottage, beside a grove, standing in a dale. This widow of which I tell you my tale, since the like day that she was last a wife, in patience led a full, simple life. For little was her cattle and her rent, by husbandry of such as God her sent, she found herself, and eke her doctrine too. Three large sows had she, and no mo, three kine, and eke a sheep that height maw. Full sooty was her bower, and eke her hall, in which she ate full many a slender meal. Of poignant sauce, her needed never a deal, no dainty morsel passed through her throat. Her diet was accordant to her coat. Repletion nay made her never sick, a tempered diet was all her physic, and exercise and heart's sufficience. The gout let her nothing for to dance, napoplexy nishent not her head, no wine ne drank she, neither white nor red. Her board was served most with white and black, 
milk and brown bread in which she found no lack, signed bacon, and sometime an egg or tway, for she was, as it were, a manner day. A yard she had enclosed all about, with sticks and a dry ditch without, in which she had a cock height chanticleer, in all the land of crowing was none his peer. His voice was merrier than the merry organ, on mass days in that church gone. Well, sickerer was his crowning in his lodge than is a clock or an abbey or lodge. By nature he knew each ascension of the equinoctical in Thilky Town, for when degrees fifteen were ascended, then crew he that it might not be amended. His comb was redder than the fine quarrel, and battled as it were a castle wall. His bill was black, and as the jet it shone, like azure were his legs and his tongue, his nails whiter than the lily flower, and like the burned gold was his color. This gentle cock had in his governance seven hens for to do all his pleasance, which were his sisters and his paramours, and wonder like to him as of colors, of which the fairest hued on her throat was clept fair damoiselle partelote. Courteous she was, discreet and debonair, and companable, and bare herself so fair. Sin thilky day that she was seven night old, that truly she hath the heart in hold of Chanticleer, lockin in every lith. He loved her so, that well was him therewith. But such a joy was it to hear him sing, when that the bright sun gone to spring. In sweet accord, my life is fairin on land, for thilky time, as I have understand, beasts and birds could speak and sing. And so befell that in a dawning, as Chanticleer among his wives all, sat on his perch that was in the hall, and next to him sat this fair partelote, this Chanticleer, gan groanin in his throat, as man that in his dream is dretched sore, and when that partelote thus heard him roar, she was aghast, and said, O heart dear, what aileth you to groan in this manner? Ye be a very sleeper, fie for shame. And he answered and said thus, Madame, I pray that ye take it not to grief. By God me met, I was in such mischief, right now that yet mine heart is sore affright. Now God, quoth he, my sweven read aright, and keep my body out of foul prison. Me met how that I roamed up and down, within our yard, whereas I saw a beast was like a hound, and would have made a rest upon my body, and have had me dead. His color was betwixt yellow and red, and tipped was his tail, and both his ears with black, unlike the remnant of his hairs. His snout small with glowing iron tway, yet of his look for fear I almost day. This caused me my groaning doubtless. Avoy, quoth she, fie on you heartless. Alas, quoth she, for by that God above, now have ye lost mine heart and all my love. I cannot love a coward by my faith, for certs, whatso any woman saith, we all desire, if it might be, to have husbands hardy, wise, and free, and secra, and no niggard, nay, no fool, nay him that is aghast of every tool, nay none avantur by that God above. How durst ye say for shame unto your love, that anything might make in you afeard? Have ye no man's heart, and have a beard? Alas, 
and can you be a guest of Swevens? Nothing but vanity, God wot, in Sweven is, Swevens engender of repletions, and oft of fume and of complexions, when humours be too abundant in a white. Search this dream which ye have met to-night, cometh of the great superfluity of your ready cholera party, which causeth folk to dreamen in here dreams, of arrows and of fire with red leams, of great beasts that they will hem bite, of contact and of whelps great and light, right as the humour of melancholy causeth full many a man in sleep to cry, for fear of black bears or bulls blake, or else blake devils will him take. Of other humours could I tell also, that work in many a man in sleep full woe, but I will pass as lightly as I can. Lo, Cato, which that was so wise a man, said he not thus, nay do no force of dreams. Now, sir, quoth she, when ye fly from the beams, for God's love, as take some laxative, up peril of my soul and of my life, I counsel you the best, I will not lie, that both of choler and of melancholy ye purge you, and for ye shall not tarry, though in this town is none apothecary. I shall myself to herbs teachen you, that shall be for your heel and for your prow, and in our yard, though herbs shall I find, the which have of here property by kind, to purge in you beneath and eke above. Forget not this for God's own love, yet be full choleric of complexion, where the sun in his ascension, ne find you not replete of humours hot, and if it do, I dare well lay a groat, that ye shall have a fever tertian, or an ague that may be your bane. A day or two ye shall have digestives of worms, ere ye take your laxatives of l'oreal sanctuary and fumentaire, or else of hellebore that groweth there, of catapuce or of gates berries, of herb ivy growing in our yard that merry is. Pick him up right as they grow and eat him in. Be merry, husband, for your father kin dreadeth no dream. I can say you no more. Madame, quoth he, grand mercy of your lore, but natheless, as touching Dan Caton, thou hath of wisdom such a great renown, though that he bade no dreams for to dread, by God men may in old books read, of many a man more of authority than ever Cato was, so mote I the, that all the reverse say of this sentence, and have well founded by experience, that dreams be significations as well of joy as of tribulations, that folk endurin in this life present, there needeth make of this none argument. The very prev sheweth it indeed. One of the greatest authors that men read, saith thus, that Wilhelm too follows went on pilgrimage in a full good intent, and happed so they came into a town, whereas there was such a congregation of people, and eke so straight of herborage, that they nay found as much as one cottage, in which they both might lodged be, wherefore they mustened of necessity, as for that night departing company. And each of him goeth to his hostelry, and took his lodging as it would fall, that one of them was lodged in a stall, far in a yard with oxen of the plough. That other man was lodged well enow, as was his aventure or his fortune, that us governeth all as in commune. And so befell, that long ere it were the day, this man met 
in his bed, there as he lay, how that his fellow gan upon him call, and said, Alas, for in an ox's stall, this night I shall be murdered, there I lie. Now help me, dear brother, or I die. In all haste come to me, he said. This man out of his sleep for fear abrade, but when he was wakened of his sleep, he turned him and took of this no keep. Him thought his dream nus but a vanity. Thus twice in his sleeping dreamed he, and at the third time yet his fellow came as him thought and said, I am now slaw. Behold my bloody wounds deep and wide, arise up early in the morrow tide, and at the west gate of the town, quoth he, a cart full of dung there shalt thou see, into which my body is hid full privily. Do thilk cart arresten boldly. My gold caused my murder sooth to sayin, and told him every point how he was slain, with a full piteous face pale of hue. And trusteth well his dream he found full true, for on the morrow, as soon as it was day, to his fellows in he took his way. And when that he came to this ox's stall, after his fellow he began to call. The hosteller answered him anon, and said, Sir, your fellow is a gone. As soon as day he went out of the town. This man gan fallen in suspicion, remembering on his dreams that he met, and forth he goeth, no longer would he let, unto the west gate of the town, and found a dung-cart, as it were to dung-lound, that was arrayed in that same wise, as ye have heard the dead man devise. And with an hearty heart he gan to cry, Vengeance and justice of this felony, my fellow murdered, is this same night, and in this cart he lieth gaping upright. I cry out on the ministers, quoth he, that should keep and rule in this city. Harrow, alas, here lieth my friend slain. What should I more unto this tale saying? The people outstart and cast the cart to ground, and in the middle of the dung they found the dead man that murdered was all new. O blissful God, thou art so just and true, lo how that thou be rayest murder alway. Murder will out that we see day by day. Murder is so lotsome and abominable to God that is so just and reasonable, that he nay will not suffer it hell it be, though it abide a year or two or three. Murder will out, this is my conclusion. And right anon ministers of that town have hent the carter, and so sore him pined, and eke the hosteler so sore engined, that they be new her wickedness anon, and were unhanged by the naked bone. Here may men see that dreams be to dread, and certs in the same book I read, right in the next chapter after this. I gab not, so have I joy and bliss. To men that would have passed over sea for certain cause into a far country, if that the wind ne had a been contrary, that made him in a city for to tarry, that stood full merry upon an haven side. But on a day again the even tide, the wind gan change and blew right as him lest. Jolly and glad they went until her rest, and casting em full early for to sail. But to that one man fell a great marvail, that one of them in sleeping as he lay, he met a wonder dream again the day. Him thought a man stood by his bed aside, and him commanded that he should abide, and said to him thus, If thou to-morrow wend, thou shalt be drayant, my tale is at an end. 
he woke and told his fellow what he meant, and prayed him his voyage to let. As for that day he prayed him for to abide, his fellow that lay by his bed aside. Gan for to laugh, and scorned him full fast. No dream, quoth he, may so my heart aghast, that I will letten for to do my things. I set not a straw by thy dreamings. For swevens be but vanities and japes. Men dream all day of owls or of apes, and eke of many a maze therewithal. Men dream of thing that never was, Nashal. But sith I see that thou wilt here abide, and thus for slothen willfully thy tide, God wot it rueth me, and have good day. And thus he took his leave, and went his way. But ere that he had half his course assailed, not I not why, nay what mischance it ailed, but casually the ship's bottom rent, and ship and man under the water went, in sight of other ships there beside, that with him sailed at the same tide. And therefore, fair partelote so dear, by such ensamples old yet mayest thou leer, that no man should be too reckless of dreams, for I say thee doubtless, that many a dream fool sore is for to dread. Lo, in the life of St. Kenelm I read, that was Canulfus' son, the noble king of Mersenreich, how Kenelm met a thing. A little ere he was murdered on a day, his murder in his a vision he say. His Norris him expounded every dell, his sweven, and bade him for to keep him well, for treason. But he nas but seven year old, and therefore little tale hath he told, of any dream, so holy was his heart. By God I had lifer than my shirt, that had ye read his legend, as have I. Dame Partelote, I say you truly, Macrobius that writ the vision, in Alfric of the worthy Scipion, affirmeth dreams, and saith that they be warnings of things that men after see. And furthermore, I pray you looketh well in the Old Testament of Daniel. If he held dreams any vanity, read eke of Joseph, and there shall ye see, where dreams be sometime, I say not all, warning of things that shall after fall. Look of Egypt, the king Dan Pharaoh, his baker and his butler also, whether they ne felt in none effect in dreams, whoso will seek in acts of sundry reams. May read of dreams many a wonder thing. Locrosius, which that was of Lydia king, Met he not that he sat upon a tree which signified he should a hanged be? Lo here, Andromach, Hectorus' wife, that day that Hector should lease his life, she dreamed on the same night beforn how that the life of Hector should be lorn, if thilk day he went into battle. She warned him, but it might not avail. He went for to fighten nonetheless, and he was slain anon of Achilles. But Thilke tale is all too long to tell, and eke it is nigh day I may not dwell. Shortly I say as for conclusion that I shall have of this a vision adversity, and I say furthermore that I may tell of laxatives no store, for they be venomous, I wot it well, I hem defy, I love him never, Adele. Now let us speak of mirth and stint all this, Madam Partelote, so have I bliss. Of one thing God hath sent me large grace. For when I see the beauty of your face, you be so scarlet red about your iron, it maketh all my dread for to die in. For also sicker as in principio 
mulier et hominus confusio. Madame, the sentence of this Latin is, Woman is man's joy and all his bliss. For when I feel a night your soft side, I am so full of joy and of solace that I defy both sweven and dream. And with that word he flew down from the beam, for it was day and eke his hens all, and with a chuck he gan him for to call, for he had found a corn lay in the yard. Royal was he, he was no more afeard. He looketh as it were a grim lion, and on his toes he roameth up and down. Him deigned not to set his feet to ground, he chucketh when he hath a corn ye found. And to him rennen then his wives all, thus royal as a prince is in his hall, leave I this chanticleer in his pasture, and after will I tell his aventure. When that the month in which the world began, that height march when God first maked man, was complete, and ye past were also. Sith and March began, thirty days and two, befell that Chanticleer in all his pride, his seven wives walking by his side, cast up his iron to the bright sun, that in the sign of Taurus had run, twenty degrees and one, and somewhat more. He knew by kind, and by none other lore, that it was prime, and crew with blissful steven. The sun, he said, is clomen up on heaven. Forty degrees and one, and more you wis. Madam Partelo, my world's bliss, hearkeneth these blissful birdies how they sing, and see the fresh flowers how they spring, full is mine heart of revel and solace. But suddenly him fell a sorrowful case, for ever the latter end of joy is woe, God wot that worldly joy is soon ago, and if a rether could fair indict him in a chronic safely, might it write, as for a sovereign notability. Now every wise man let him hearken me. This story is also true, I undertake, as is the book of Launcelot de Lake, that women hold in full great reverence. Now will I turn again to my sentence. A coal fox full of sly iniquity, that in the grove had wound years three, by high imagination forn cast, the same night throughout the hedges brast. Into the yard there chanticleer the fair, was wont and eke his wives to repair. And in a bed of wardis still he lay, till it was passed undern of the day, waiting his time on Chanticleer to fall, as gladly do these homicides all, that in await lie to murder men. O false murderer, lurking in thy den, O new scariot, new genelon, false dissimilar, O Greek sinon, that broughtest Troy all utterly to sorrow. O Chanticleer, accursed be that morrow, that thou into that yard flew from the beams, that thou were full well warranted by thy dreams, that thilk day was perilous to thee. But what that God for what motes needs be, after the opinion of certain clerks, witness on him that any perfect clerk is, that in school is great altercation, in this matter, and great dispution, and hath been of a hundred thousand men. But I nay cannot bolt it to the bren, as can the holy doctor Augustine, or Boshi, or the bishop Bradwarden. Whether that goads worthy for whiting, straineth me needly for to do a thing, needly cleep a simple necessity, or else if free choice be granted me, to do that same thing, or do it not, though God for what it ere that it was wrought.
or if his whiting staineth never Adele, but by necessity conditional. I will not have to do of such matter. My tale is of a cock, as ye may hear, that took his counsel of his wife with sorrow, to walk in in the yard upon that morrow, that he had met the dream that I of told. Women's counsels be full often cold. Women's counsel brought us first to woe, and made Adam from paradise to go, there as he was full merry and well at ease. But I for not, to whom it might displease, if I counsel of woman would blame, pass over for I said it in my game. Read authors where they treat of such matter, and what they say of women ye may hear. These be the cock's words, not mine. I can none harm of no woman divine. Fair in the sand to bathe her merrily, lieth Partelote and all her sisters by, again the sun, and Chanticleer so free, sang merrier than the mermaid in the sea. For physiologus saith sickerly, how they that sing in well and merrily. And so befell that as he cast his eye among the wartus on a butterfly, he was aware of this fox that lay full low. Nothing they list him then for to crow. But cried anon, cock, cock, and up he start, as man that was afraid in his heart. For naturally a beast desireth flee from his contrary, if he may it see, though he ne'er erst had seen it with his eye. This Chanticleer, when he gan him a spy, he would have fled, but that the fox anon said, Gentle sir, alas, why will ye gone? Be ye afraid of me that am your friend? Now, certes, I were worse than a friend, if I to you would harm or villainy. I am not come your counsel for to a spy, but truly the cause of my coming was only for to hearken how that ye sing. For truly ye have as merry a steven as any angel hath that is in heaven. Therewith ye have in music more feeling than had Bochi or any that can sing. My lord, your father, God his soul bless, and eke your mother of her gentleness. Have in mine house ye been, to my great ease, and certes, sir, full fain would I you please. But for men speak of singing, I will say, so might I brooken well my iron tway. Save you, I heard never man so sing, as did your father in the morwening. Certes, it was of heart all that he sung, and for to make his voice the more strong, and for to make his voice the more strong, he would so pain him, that with both his iron he must wink so loud he would cryin, and standin' on his tiptin therewithal, and stretchin forth his neck long and small. And eke he was of such discretion, that there nas no man in no region, that him in song or wisdom might pass. I have well read in Dan Burnell the ass among his verse, how that there was a cock, for that a priest's son gave him a knock upon his leg while he was young and nice, he made for him to lease his benefice, but certain there nis no comparison betwixt the wisdom and discretion of your father and of his subtlety. Now singeth, sir, for saint charity. Let's see, can ye your father counterfeit? This Chanticleer his wings gan to beat, as man that could his treason not espy, so was he ravished with his flattery. Alas, ye lords, many a false flatour is in your courts, and many a lucingure, that pleasing you well more by my faith than he that soothfastness unto you saith. Readeth Ecclesiast of flattery, beware, ye lords, of her treachery. 
This chanticleer stood high upon his toes, stretching his neck, and held his iron clothes, and gan to crow in loud for the nonce, and Dan Russell the fox start up at once, and by the garget hent chanticleer, and on his back toward the wood him bear, for yet ne was there no man that him sued. O destiny that mayest not be eschewed! Alas, that Chanticleer flew from the beams! Alas, his wife ne wrought not of dreams! And on a Friday fell all this mischance, O Venus, that art goddess of pleasance! Sin that thy servant was this Chanticleer, and in thy service did all his power, more for delight than world to multiply, why wouldst thou suffer him on thy day to die? O Gofrid, dear master sovereign, that when thy worthy king Richard was slain, with shot complainest his death so sore. Why, Nad, I now thy sentence and thy lore, that Friday for to chide, as didn't ye. For on a Friday soothly slain was he. Then would I shew you how that I could plain for Chanticleer's dread and for his pain. Certes, such cry, nay lamentation, was ne'er of ladies made when Ilion was won and Pyrrhus with his straight sword when he had hent king priam by the beard and slain him athseus anidios as maiden all the hens in the close when they had seen of chanticleer the sight but sovereignly dame partalote shrite full louder than has drubala's wife when that her husband had lost his life and that the romans had burnt carthage she was so full of torment and of rage that wilfully into the fire she start and brent her selvin with a steadfast heart. O woeful hens, right so cried in ye, as when that Nero brent the city of Rome, cried in senators' wives for that their husbands lost in all her lives. Withouten guilt this Nero hath him slain. Now will I turn to my tale again. This selly widow and eke her daughters too, herdin these hens cry and makin woe, and out at doors startin they anon, and saw the fox toward the grove gone, and bear upon his back the cock away. They cried out, Harrow and Wellaw, ha ha the fox, and after him they ran, and eke with staves many another man, ran call our dog and Talbot and Garland and Mulkin with a distaff in her hand, ran cow and calf and eke the very hoggis, so were they feared for barking of the dogis and shouting of the men and women eke, they ran in so hem thought her heart to break. They yelled as fiends do in hell, the ducks cried in as men would hem quell, the geese for fear flew in o'er the trees, out of the hive came the swarm of bees, so hideous was the noise, ah, benceit. Sertz he, Jack Straw, and his man, nay maiden, never shouts half so shrill, when they that wouldn't any Fleming kill, as silk day was made upon the fox. Of brass they brought in beams and of box, of horn and bone in which they blew and pooped, and therewithal they shrieked and they hooped. It seemed as that heaven should fall. Now, good men, I pray you hearkeneth all. Lo, how fortune turneth suddenly the hope and pride eke of her enemy. This cock that lay upon the fox's back, in all his dread unto the fox he spake, and said, Sir, if that I were as ye, yet would I say as wis, God help me. Turneth again, you proud churless all, every pestilence upon you fall. Now am I come unto the wood's side, 
Maugre your head, the cock shall here abide. I will eat him in faith, and that anon. The fox answered, In faith it shall be done. And as he spake that word, all suddenly this cock brake from his mouth deliverly, and high upon a tree he flew anon. And when the fox saw that he was gone, Alas, quoth he, O Chanticleer, alas, I have to you, quoth he, done trespass, inasmuch as I make you afeard, when I you hent and brought out of the yard, but, sir, I did it of no wick intent, come down and I shall tell you what I meant. I shall say sooth to you, God help me so. Nay, then, quoth he, I shrew us both too, and first I shrew myself of blood and bones, if thou beguile me any ofter than once. Thou shalt no more, through thy flattery, do me to sing and winken with mine eye. For he that winketh when he should see, all willfully, God let him never thee. Nay, quoth the fox, but God give him mischance, that is so indiscreet of governance, that jangleth when he should hold his peace. Lo, such it is for to be reckless, and negligent, and trust on flattery. But ye that hold in this tale a folly, as of a fox or of a cock and hen, take the morality thereof, good men. For St. Paul saith that all that is written is, to our doctrine it is writ wis. Take it the fruit, and let the chaff be still. Now, good God, if that it be thy will, as saith my Lord, so make us all good men and bring us to his high bliss. Amen. Truth Ballad of Good Counsel Section 10 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume And there it was, the first reference to April Fool's Day. What I quite like about that is that it it harkens back to this idea of what it is to be the April Fool. That story, The Nun's Priest's Tale, it contains stories within stories within stories. And it's a case of, oh, well, I heard this, and I'm going to tell you this piece of gossip, but I digress from my original story because I heard this that is interesting. And it's kind of about gullibility. And it's about this idea that we believe without thinking critically, kind of like I was saying at the top of the show. And so while April Fool's Day has kind of become this um, practical jokes day, uh, particularly among our young people, you know, the idea of switching out sugar and salt or putting cling film over the toilet seat, those are the two, um, two stereotypes. April Fool's Day is traditionally a a celebration, I suppose, of the gullibility of many people and, and of the, the lack of fact-checking. We heard that in Chaucer. We see that in some of the, the most widely known pranks that have been played. Um, History.com has got quite an interesting article about April Fool's Day. Um, and it runs, it describes some of the pranks that, um, that have been played on national scales. So it reminds us of 1957, when the BBC reported. So the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, the, the, the paragon of news, reported that farmers in Switzerland were experiencing a record spaghetti crop. And they showed news footage of 
farmers harvesting spaghetti noodles from trees. In 1985, very good year 1985 in my opinion, um, the year I was born. In 1985, Sports Illustrated um, ran a made-up article about a a baseball pitcher called Sid Finch, who apparently could throw a fastball at 168 miles an hour. In 1992, the American NPR, the National Public Radio, ran a spot with uh, former President Nixon, announcing that he was running for office again. Except it wasn't President Nixon, it was an actor. Uh, in 1996, the fast food restaurant chain Taco Bell um, said that it was going to buy the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia and was going to rename it the Taco Liberty Bell. In 1998, Burger King advertised a left-handed Whopper, which I think is a great idea. I'm just saying on behalf of all lefties, I think that we need to have more things catered specifically for us. And I think a left-handed Whopper is a good place to start. Um, but that was Taco Bell's prank in 1996, the left-handed Whopper, and people actually went, uh, sorry, that was Burger King, and people actually went into Burger King um, and asked for the left-handed Whopper. Google very famously plays pranks, which have ranged from telepathic searches to the ability to play Pac-Man on Google Maps, which again is one that I think is, is very interesting. I think that'll be fun. If anybody can do that and can do some kind of AR Pac-Man along Google Maps, I think that would actually be a lot of fun. So there are all sorts of, of pranks that are played on April Fool's Day. But as we have seen today, traditionally, they run into the gullibility. Um, Tim texted in, I loved all of the intertextual references and the layer upon layer of stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. A story within a story, a play within a play. It's it's a long-standing tradition of literature. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it does show how easy it is for us as people to fall into stories, um, to believe stories, especially when those stories appeal to um, appeal to truths. You know, the reason that the BBC's spaghetti harvesting story in 1957 worked was because people didn't really, in, in Britain, pasta wasn't a big thing at that time. It, it wasn't widely available. Uh, people didn't really know where pasta came from, and it was the BBC. And you trust the BBC. So if they tell you that people are growing and harvesting pasta, you believe that that's what's happening. So I guess what this has come down to is that April Fool's Day is an old tradition. Uh, not as old as we might like it to be. Certainly not as old as people in the 1700s were attempting to justify it as being. But it has been part of our culture for a very long time. It's not going anywhere, um, in spite of the fact that I don't like it. It has evolved from being a predominantly, oh, I heard this, and preying on the gullibility of your victim, into more practical jokes as they as they occur now. But at its heart, I think it, it is a good warning for us to remember that we should always read things with a critical eye. We shouldn't disbelieve for the sake of disbelieving. We shouldn't be cynical for the sake of being cynical. Because I think that makes for a very dull, 
very depressing, very negative world. But at the same time, we shouldn't believe something for the sake of believing it either. And it's very good for us as adults and for the young people with whom we interact to just be wary of what we are hearing, to think about who profits from what we are hearing, what is the intended audience of what we are hearing, how is, how is this being constructed in order to appeal to that audience, and does that have an impact on the veracity, the validity of what we're being told. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. And that is it for us today. That brings us to the end of our breakfast time together. I hope you have enjoyed the show as much as I have enjoyed um, hosting it for you. Uh, please do stay tuned. We've got Eugene at 5pm today. Um, so he will be live here on the Podbean app um, or wherever you are listening to Teachers Talk Radio. So please do tune in for his show at 5pm. We've got the TTR Week in Review live stream tomorrow at 10am. And then Maud is going live at 5pm again once uh, once again here on Podbean. So please do listen out for those. We have so many amazing hosts, so many amazing shows uh, here at Teachers Talk Radio. Um, I will not be with you for breakfast next Saturday. Um, I am taking next week off for Holy Saturday. So I will see you all again in two weeks time. Thank you very much. Have yourself a great weekend and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.